0: Thank you so much. <clears throat> Great to see you. Let's welcome all our Kingsgate Cambridge family, Kingsgate Leicester and everyone online. I won't start by trying to do an Ellie Mumford impression. There is only one Ellie Mumford. So uh, Ellie, if you're watching this, hope you'll get better soon. Well, it's a privilege to continue this series on radical partnership, on radical partnership. Today, I want to look at a particular characteristic of us being radical partners. And it's the whole thing of us having true confidence in Christ. How many you agree with me that in our crazy world that we're living in, and right now you may feel like your life is a bit crazy, there's something we need which is a real and a genuine true sense of confidence. And now when it comes to confidence, <clears throat> there's a danger of an overconfidence, a kind of arrogance. Um, how many don't like arrogant people? You know, a bit cocky. Well, here's somebody who's a bit cocky. Irish playwright and critic George Bernard Shaw uh, used to say, my speciality is being right when other people are wrong. Do you know anyone like that? Always just a bit one-upmanship, bit superior. For much of my adult life, some of the cockiest people on the planet were Man United fans. No more. <laughs> now there is potential for a new kind of cocky football fan, but I'm trying to keep it under... Uh, I'm not really that confident. Anyway, we can fall into the trap of overconfidence. And More seriously, we can put our trust in people or ourselves or our circumstances, maybe our career or our education, and we can fall into the trap of an overconfidence. And what does it say? Pride comes before a fall. But on the other hand... I believe there's an equal danger, and sometimes I think maybe it's more prevalent. We can suffer from a complete lack of confidence or a sense of inadequacy. And I'm very conscious as I'm speaking, whether you're online in Cambridge, Leicester, here in the room, there are probably many of you who deep down, there is a sense of you just not really possess a deep sense of confidence. Outwardly, you might put on a brave face. But inwardly, there's something just not quite right. And if so, I really hope this message will help you today. And we can look at people, can't we, on the outside and think, well, they've got it all together. <laughs> they look outwardly kind of pretty successful or pretty kind of bold. But sometimes the most successful, outwardly looking, confident people actually still suffer with this. So <laughs> take megastar Madonna. You'd agree outwardly she looks like she's got a lot of bravado. But she's been very honest about her inner struggles. Here's a quote from her. All of my will has been always to conquer <clears throat> some feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Pretty sad kind of commentary on somebody suffering from a lack of confidence. So the question is um, should we be confident? And more importantly, if if we are to be confident, what kind of confidence? What is true confidence? Well, here in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, it's a magnificent passage. I'm glad that the the message boomeranged back to me. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 is a marvellous letter, a marvellous passage. It's one of Paul's most personal and passionate Uh, parts of this letter or any of his letters and he starts off with a note of joyful confidence. He says this, further my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. Now in case you say oh Paul stop talking about joy, uh, you know who are you to talk about joy? Can I say Paul was well qualified to talk about joy. Remember where was Paul writing from? He, that's right. He was writing from prison. And I, for me, it's just this thing of chain 24 7 to different Roman guards. I mean, how restricting, how circumstantially hopeless and awful would it have been like to have been in a Roman prison? You agree? So when Paul says rejoice in the Lord, he's not kind of some just sort of positive mind over matter kind of guy, you know, all will be well. No, he's actually saying there's a true source of joy and it's not in circumstance. It cannot be because of where Paul was. And how many of you find that um, your your joy levels or your happiness more to the point can go up and down dependent on what goes on? Anyone else or it just me? But what Paul's trying to teach us is there's a different kind of confidence, there's a different kind of joy, whereas he didn't just say rejoice, he says rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And then before he unpacks what this rejoicing or this new true confidence in the Lord looks like, he suddenly changes tack and he gives a strong warning of the dangers of false confidence, the dangers of false confidence. Now, what is false confidence? Well, according to Paul, as we'll see, false confidence is where we end up putting our trust or our reliance, that's what confidence means, putting our trust or reliance on anyone or anything other than Christ. And so he makes a pretty strong statement. Get ready for this. Fasten your seatbelts. Watch out for those dogs, (coughs) those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, would you agree Paul is not feeling very laid back at this moment? He's not feeling fairly indifferent. He is really, really feeling passionately protective for the well-being of his partners here in the church in Philippi. So why is Paul so exercised? I mean, so far we haven't seen much of this. I mean, the letter's been pretty kind of uh, faith-filled and positive. Suddenly, he's he's on a little bit of a sort of a Holy Spirit rant. So why, why is he so exercised? Who are these people And by the way, dogs in that, um, some of you love dogs, you've got pets. Can I say, in that culture, dogs were not nice, cuddly household things. They were wild scavenger scavenger dogs. So this was not a compliment. (laughs) Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Pretty strong. What's he talking about? He's actually referring to a group of false teachers. We don't know whether they were yet in the church in Philippi or he's just warning them. They're kind of wandering around. And they were teaching these new Gentile Christians that in order to be a Christian, you had to be circumcised. Now, so what? Paul was circumcised, as we shall see. And, you know, uh, circumcision was originally given by God. So why is Paul so determined to warn the ch- church here of circumcision, apart from the fact it would have been a pretty painful thing and something you want to avoid if you don't need to have it done. Do you agree? Yep. Moving on quickly. <laughs> so why, why, why is circumcision such an evil thing in this context? Because for Paul, he sees that the root of this insistence on circumcision was to add something Almost like a, a sense of identity that added to the salvation that can only come through one person and one person alone through Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And Paul's saying, do not add anything or anyone, no outward markers, no, 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 nothing should come in the way of the fact that the only way that we're saved is through Jesus Christ and through him alone. That's it. In other words, he's standing not just against circumcision, but a whole kind of religious system. How many know that there's plenty of religions in the world today? Here, do this, this, and this. Follow these rules. Do these things, and somehow it'll make you better before God. And Paul runs right through that, and he says, says, No. For it is we who are the circumcision. In the book of Romans, he talks about the true circumcision now in the new covenant is something inward. And he says, we who serve by his spirit, aren't you glad that we don't have to have an external identity marker? What marks us out as the people of God is the fact that we have the mark of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen. And then our identity is not in our righteousness, but we boast in Christ Jesus. Or in in Paul's um, language from an Old Testament background, we boast in the Messiah, the King Jesus. And we put, and here's his theme, no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in any kind of human form of religion. And then he says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence... And in case we missed the the point of the passage, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put, here we have again, confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, Paul's saying that if anybody could get right with God through a religious background, through religious works or a religious system, he said, it was me, Paul. Now, I don't know what your testimony is. My testimony was, I was an awful sinner (laughs) before I got saved. I was not trying to keep any rules. I was trying to break all the rules. (laughs) That was my issue. But Paul's issue was, he wasn't like that. Later on, he realizes he was a sinner. In fact, he calls himself the worst of sinners. But actually, in the context of the day, Paul was a kind of pretty upright dude. In fact, he was the upright of the the most upright. And he goes back and he starts laying down um, all kinds of, um, you can read the passage, all kinds of advantages that he had. Firstly, he says, I was circumcised on the, the eighth day. I did it the proper way. And then he goes to lay out about his family background, his racial heritage, his religious background. In other words, he's saying that, you know, if anyone could trust in their background, um, and their advantage is, it was me. If anyone, naturally speaking, had it together, it was me. And you may be like that. You may think, well, you know, if you knew my background or my education or whatever, or you may think, no, you didn't want to know about my education or my background. The point is, it doesn't matter, because as far as Paul's concerned, none of this makes a jot of difference when it comes to righteousness before Christ. And then, as if to drive the point home, so he ta- starts talking about the advantage of his birth and his background, And then he goes on to talk about his achievements. He'd been super diligent in religious terms. So he says, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, he's not just any guy trying to keep the law. He was a teacher. He was in the, as it were, the top echelon of society. He was somebody who was diligent in keeping the law and as if we hadn't got the message, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now you say, what's all that got to do we're with us today. Well, the the the, what the the point here is, is that it's possible, even as Christians, to somehow put our right standing before God based on how we are doing in our Christian life. Now, you will meet people today. You start sharing the gospel with them, and they 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 default. Particularly if they're from a certain generation, they will say, "Well, I'm a good person." Have you ever heard that before? Well, I don't harm anybody. I try and help my neighbor as if, yeah. What they're really saying is, I don't need Jesus. I don't need to be saved because I'm a good person. But I believe if we're not careful, that kind of can actually slip in. And without, without realizing, it can actually con us into thinking that our righteousness is based on who we are and what we can do rather than on Jesus Christ. And you know, going that way always leads to disappointment and frustration. Now, let me tell you a story. Some of you heard before. Uh, Many years ago, Karen and I went to a friend's um, lodge on Exmoor. Went for a holiday. And we decided that we would go to the highest point of the moor to a place called Dunkery Beacon. Now, we set out... um, We didn't have, our phones weren't weren't on. So we set out trying to follow the directions and also my natural navigational skills. And I want you to know, I have a good sense of direction. I feel quite (laughs) proud of it, actually. So we start kind of going this way. Some of the signs were wrong, which didn't help. And anyway, we ended up, after an hour and a half, completely frustrated and lost. At one point, it was, why don't we take this next hill and see? And then from the bottom of the hill, I'm not going up another hill. I'll leave you to work out who is who. <laughs> anyway, we recover from that argument. <laughs> I'm sure none of you ever have arguments, but. But what was so frustrating was that we could see the hill, we could see the peak, we could see Dunkery Beacon in the distance. The problem was there was this like great big gulf, this great big ravine, almost like a chasm, and we just couldn't figure out the way to get over it. So we went home frustrated. Fast forward to this year, my 60th birthday, we went on a four-generational holiday to the same place. So guess what we decided to do? Go on a walk to Dunkery Beacon. But this time, Alex... um, our son-in-law, um, had actually been there before and so knew the way. So we set out on what looked like a similar road. I thought, well, I recognised some of this. And I'm like, are we sure we're not going to get lost again? In fact, Karen at one time almost encouraged him to turn back. And he's like, no, I know the way. Anyway, long story short, lo and behold, we made it. <laughs> we made it to the top. <laughs> there was this amazing 360-degree view. Uh, and then, so all was well. Uh, and then the problem was, Karen and some of the party decided to go back earlier with Alex while a few of us said, well, we'll stay a bit longer and enjoy time at the top because we thought we'd make it back. <laughs> Guess what? We took a wrong turn. <laughs> I was with my dad. We got lost in the heather and I literally had to prop him up and Chris had to run home, get the car. He found it to the road and rescue us. And they say, well, so what? Well, I think it's just a little picture of how if we try and do life on our own, if we try and, as it were, get across the ravine caused by our sin and our guilt in our own efforts, do you know, it's always going to lead to frustration. And it's even possible, as it were, to have found the way, but they end up, as it were, taking life into our own hands and forgetting that there is one who not only knows the way, Jesus, by his spirit, but he made the way, he laid down his life across the ravine to make the way for us to come home to God. Amen. So here we're talking about the dangers of false confidence. So where do we turn? We turn, as Paul turns, to the one and only source of true confidence. Say true confidence. Who is that? It's Jesus. Christ alone is the source of, of our true confidence and here in the next part of the passage verses 7 to 11 Paul basically talks about Christ nine times nine times either by name or by pronoun now if you if you are gonna in your sentence you talk about somebody nine times in five sentences guess what it tells you (laughs) about what you feel about that person I think we heard it a few weeks ago from Andrew. This is Paul with his magnificent obsession for the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you at the heart of Kingsgate and at the heart of what I believe this series is about, where God wants to take us as we look ahead. 35 years have gone, now we're looking ahead. I want to say, I want to call everyone, Cambridge, Leicester, online here in Peterborough campus, I'm calling us all to a fresh sense of a magnificent obsession with Jesus Christ. He alone is our true (laughs) confidence. And I love this. Look at Paul's language. He, he looks back at everything that he'd put his his false confidence in. He says, "But whatever were gains to me, in other, in other words, whatever I had going for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, for whose sake." I have lost all things; I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. I haven't got time to unpack this in detail, but basically, Paul's looking at his life, and he's saying, all my achievements, all my the privileges of my birth, if you like, if that's on one column, like a profit and loss column, I used to consider them as great gain. I used to consider that these were the things that somehow would impress God. He says now, in contrast to. And in comparison to knowing Christ, I not only consider them uh, to be worth nothing, I consider them a loss for the great gain of knowing Christ. Do you feel like that? As you look at your life, think about it, be honest. Are there other things in your kind of, in, in my benefit column? I want to tell you, if we are going to be truly confident in the Lord, we need to reckon everything else. And he uses the word as rubbish. Now that word rubbish is a polite, Word. It meant in the original, either waste or human excrement. It's the nearest thing we have in the New Testament to an expletive. Would you agree Paul's getting pretty worked up here? He's basically saying, everything else is dung, human excrement, garbage, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And then he outlines uh, a number of, as it were, reasons why having Christ in our lives is the only true source of confidence. Firstly, because when we're in Christ, we have a new identity and we have a standing of righteousness in Christ. How many know that? And, and those of you who identify with feeling very insecure or inadequate, I want to tell you the starting point I would go to. I believe in counseling, by the way, and therapy and all those things. But my starting point would be, do you really know who you are in Jesus Christ? Because trying to overcome a sense of insecurity or inadequacy by just kind of trying to kind of deal with your mind and mind over matter stuff. And it's all part of a process, but the root foundation is knowing that we know that we know that we are no longer lost and orphans and rejected. We are now accepted in the beloved in Jesus Christ. That is the root foundation of every true source of confidence, knowing our new identity in Christ. And Paul puts it this way. And he homes in on one aspect of what it means to be in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So he's coming back to this whole theme. He's saying, everything that I tried to do, all as it were the religious brownie points that I, knocked, that I, that I notched up through my, um, my own efforts, he says, I'm not going to put my trust in that. I don't know about you. I don't want to put my trust and my righteousness based on how well I've done, even as a Christian. Because Paul's saying, both now and on the day of judgment, I don't want to be saying, God, look at me. Yep, see, see what I did? See, no. no. I'm going to say, no, look at him, Lord. Look at Jesus. I'm in him and he's in me. My righteousness is not based on my own. It's based on Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. <laughs> And I know this is absolutely basic to what it means to be a Christian, but sometimes I think as the church, we need to be reminded of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel at the heart of it is a great exchange. It says that no, if, if the, if the pass mark is 100, even the apostle Paul didn't reach there. The most zealous of people, nobody has met the standard apart from one, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so whether you think you're a miserable sinner, whether you think you're doing okay, I'm gonna tell you, none of us are right before God. Except when we accept Jesus Christ and put our faith in what he's done. And on the cross, he took all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our failures upon himself. And he said, now, I gift you, now and forever, my right standing with the Father. That means that we can approach our Father not based on how well we're doing but we can come before the Father based on the fact that Christ is in us. We are in him, and he is totally blameless, pure, and righteous. I can have confidence, and so can you, before God. We can have confidence in dealing with the devil when he comes at us with condemnation, saying, my right standing is not based on how well I'm doing. I want to do better, but that's none of your business. My righteousness is based on Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. Amen. I remember many years ago when I was a young Christian, I knew I was born again. i have been gloriously saved. And I started reading books on spiritual growth. How many know spiritual growth is a good thing? There's a particular book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. I loved it. It was all like talked about fasting. So I decided to fast 24 hours a day. I started praying. Uh, I started dealing with lust. I started dealing with my appetites. And, 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 and these are all good things to do, by the way. But I realized that if for for some reason I kind of wobbled a little bit in my performance, I started feeling like a nagging condemnation coming over me. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. And I I was into that subtle trap of doing good things as a believer, which we're supposed to do, but somehow putting my right standing before God based on my achievements. Anyone else ever done that? Five of you, just let's have a conversation (laughs) then. And I was in a Bible study at at, at uni. And we were literally just going through a Bible study on the book of Romans, Romans chapter five. And my eyes suddenly got opened to the glory of our righteousness in Jesus. And I thought, hey, I never ever need to be condemned again because I'm righteous by the blood of Jesus. I've received the gift of righteousness. Condemnation go. I can honestly tell from that moment, I'm not, I've never had it knocking on the door, but there was a root dealt with there. My, my as it were, insecurity as to how I, how I stood before God was dealt with and I believe some of you, God wants to come to you and he wants to break in, re, religious insecurity off you and say, stop trusting in yourself, start trusting in the finished work of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his righteousness. So that's the first thing, our righteousness in Christ, a new identity, but we don't stop there. It's not just, well, you know, I've been saved and I'm gonna go to heaven, I'm righteous. No, no, Paul then presses on and talks about a new intimacy, our relationship with Christ. Notice here, he talks about, he says, I want to know Christ. This is his life ambition. Now, the word know there is not know about. How many know about Jesus? My question is, do you really know him? The word know there also could be used uh, um, to talk about a man knowing his wife in an intimate way. This is, this is an intimacy with Jesus Christ that is, is exhilarating, it's, it's life-giving, it's real. And he says, I wanna know Christ. If we're gonna be truly confident, can I say, it's not just we rest on our righteousness, we rest on the fact that we have an ongoing, daily, intimate, refreshing, dynamic, powerful walk with Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, I might know the power of his resurrection. I want to tell you, if you're struggling with confidence, I, I want to tell you, you have on the inside of you the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You say, I'm battling with sin. I'm battling with fear. I want to tell you, you have a power on the inside of you, the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You can be confident through the power of the resurrection. And then he goes on, and this is the bit that I, I wish wasn't in here, but it, and he says, and participation in his sufferings. How many can say amen on that? Not so sure. Becoming like him in his death. Interesting, that word participation is our word koinonia, which is partnership. Somehow we identify with Christ. Now there's something unique about Christ suffering for our sin. And so what Paul is talking about here is probably the fact that he was being physically persecuted and actually ended up being martyred for his faith. But this does just apply to persecuted Christians. If we are to really follow Jesus and grow like him, how many know there's a death to self that happens on a daily basis? And as we die to our desires, we die to things that are not glorifying to God and good for us, there's like we participate in the sufferings of Christ and we become more like Jesus. Last week, uh, I was in uh, Norway and um, had a really busy week. Um, We hosted learning communities here and then flew over to minister these wonderful leaders in the Norway Pentecostal movement. Powerful, powerful time. But by the end of Friday afternoon, I was done I mean, I'd I'd given out and given out and I knew I had to preach again on Sunday morning and so I thought, well, Saturday is kind of a Sabbath but I I need to spend some extra time just being with the Lord because I know that my confidence is not based on whether I can minister to others. My confidence comes from Jesus. So did some resting, did some walking and at one point I thought, I'm gonna go back to a go-to passage for me and a go-to passage is Psalm 23, from the Passion Translation, and it goes like this: The Lord is my best friend and my shepherd. I always have more than enough. He offers a resting place for me in His. I love this luxurious love. His tracks take me to an oasis of peace. And I, I didn't get any further. And I just had this overwhelming sense of the presence of God coming over me as I, I was literally lying on my bed meditating. And I said, I said to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, you're my best friend. Because you're my best friend, I'm always going to have more than enough. You're the best of best friends. You're kind to me. You're good to me. You're going to supply all my needs, even in a time of drought. Hallelujah. you're, You're taking me to this oasis of peace. You're letting me lie down in your luxurious love. And I remember saying, Lord, you're such a great friend. You're my best friend. Lord, I wanna be a great friend to you too, Lord. I sense the smile of the Lord. You know, you can have that kind of conversational relationship with Jesus. Don't put Jesus in a religious box. He is alive, he is well, he is present by his spirit and he wants to reveal himself through his word as you pray in the spirit and as you just go about your day. Some I just say, Lord, you're so good. How do you think the Lord likes it when we praise him like that? Let's not just worship on a Sunday, let's worship in Monday to Saturday and let's build this sense of intimacy and a strength in our relationship with God. But the good news about the confidence Paul's talking about, it doesn't end there, it ends with a new security. How many know that one of the greatest sources of lack of confidence, what's gonna happen to us when we die? I'll tell you what's gonna happen for Christians, when we die, we're gonna go in the presence of the Lord and then when Jesus comes back, we are gonna be raised up bodily, physically with a glorious transformed body like his glorious body and we're gonna live forever on a new earth, in the new, heaven, uh, uh, in the new heavens on a new earth. We're gonna live forever. So death has lost its grip on us. <laughs> death has lost its hold on. Hence, Paul says this, and so somehow, in other words, I'm, I'm righteous in Christ, new identity. I, I'm making it my life ambition to grow in knowing Christ and become more like him. And I'm just going carry to that, carry that conversation on to the resurrection. I know him by the Spirit, and then I'm going to see him face to face. Glory to God. And just in case you're wondering, that's so somehow. Isn't Paul saying, oh, I wonder whether it's going to happen. He says, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm going to be part of the resurrection of the dead. I don't know about you, I'm going to be part of the resurrection of the dead. If you're in Christ, you're going to be part of the resurrection of the dead. Come on, let's give God thanks. Let's give him praise for the true confidence we have in Christ. So wherever we're gathered now, we're going to respond. I'd like those of us here uh, to stand, and we're going to prepare our hearts to take communion those of you watching online like to encourage you to join along with us if you haven't got one of the little pots you might like to get it ready but in order to prepare our hearts I want us to deliberately position ourselves why don't you just put your hands out right now we're going to sing beautiful sort of song of declaration you're our living hope talks about the chasm between us that only Jesus could bridge. Why don't you just take a moment and say, Lord, wherever I've been putting my confidence in anyone or anything, including myself, other than on you, I wanna lay it down. I repent of it, Lord. And now I put my confidence my hope in you. I believe the Lord is going to begin, as I believe he has been doing, he wants to minister deeply. If we've fallen into an overconfidence or probably more widely, been struggling with inadequacy and fear and inferiority, And Jesus wants to come and he wants to be listened deeply to you. If you're in Christ here, you are his beloved daughter or son. If you're in Christ, you are righteous now and for eternity. If you don't yet know Christ, whether you're watching online, you're here or you've drifted away as we get ready to take communion, why not use this song as a vehicle to begin to surrender your life to Jesus. Let's sing this and then we'll take communion together.